Um, but yeah, like I said, we're back in our study on singleness and just these single years and trying to maximize these, these years. And so as a college pastor, I want to try to equip you uh, to understand what the pitfalls are of the single season and how to maximize uh, those years and experience its blessings. And really one of those things that we're doing is we're, we're, we've been looking at this idea of the gift of singleness and trying to get some clarity on that gift. What is this gift? What's it about? And there's a lot of confusion in the church. There's a lot of confusion just kind of running rampant on this issue and singleness. And you might talk to some people and they think singleness means to be a cut above everybody else. Or you might talk to other people and think if you're single, you're like half human. Um, you, you, need to, you need to fully mature and get married. So kind of where is it? We've been looking at that um, over the last few weeks. And we started the series, if you remember back, Week number one, we looked at what we were calling the transformation of singleness. So we saw how, um, in the beginning, singleness was not a good thing uh, and throughout most of the Old Testament. And so we answered that question, how did it go from becoming something that wasn't good, it's not good the man was alone, to being something that Paul says is a good thing in 1 Corinthians 7. And so we looked at that and we saw that it's transformed through Christ uh, with the coming of Jesus and the fulfillment of his mission now, the the mandate to be fruitful and multiply is happening in and through the church as we're making disciples. And so now the singleness, single life, can be used uh, for spiritual children and multiplying spiritual disciples. And so in that way, singleness has been transformed. That was anticipated in Isaiah and now is coming to fulfillment uh, today. So that was week one. We looked at that. Um, the next week, week two, we looked at singleness according to Jesus. And I believe that was last time that we were together. Singleness according to Jesus. And we looked at two passages, Luke 20 and Matthew, was it 19? Yeah, that's right, Matthew 19. And we, we saw a number, we kind of culled out a number of principles from those texts about singleness. And we saw a few, I'll give kind of, if, in case you missed them, I'll kind of give you the, the Cliff Notes version right now, all right? We looked at several principles, I think there were six of them. And we saw from the teaching of Christ that singleness is not the norm now. Right, Even in this, this age that we live, marriage is the norm. Singleness is not the norm right now, even though it is a gift, and we should expect some in the church to be single. Jesus says that the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage in Luke 20. And that means that, that marriage belongs to this age, to this creation, this first creation. And we're still in that first creation even today. So we should expect for marriage to be the norm in the church today, even though this, the new creation is breaking in. And, uh, but there is a day coming, Jesus says, that marriage will not be the norm. He says, number two, second principle that we looked at was singleness will be the only norm later. Right. So if marriage is the norm now, in the new creation, singleness will be the norm. In the resurrection, in the new age, in the new creation, we will all be single, says Jesus. We will experience relationships that are even more intimate and satisfying than marriage when Christ returns and he raises us from the dead. And that helps us now, doesn't it? And it helps us see that marriage, even as good as it is, is not ultimate. Marriage is a time stamp and something better is coming. So singleness is going to be the only norm later. That was second principle. Third is that we saw that singleness is not for everybody. The single life isn't for everyone. The gift of singleness is not designed for everyone. Not everybody can receive the statement that the disciples made that it's better not to get married. 
So we shouldn't try to impose singleness on everybody in the church. Okay? So we're going to see today, if we do, it becomes very problematic for those people. But even though it's not for everybody, singleness is for some, and that's because Jesus taught us, principle number four, I believe it is, that singleness is a gift from God. Singleness is a gift from God. Number four, fourth principle we saw, some can receive the statement that it is better not to get married. And it's those people that God's given this ability to. He's given it to them to receive the statement, Jesus says. And that's gift language, and we're going to see that today even more clearly. That means we shouldn't just assume that everyone in the church will or even should get married. Some will stay single purposefully because they're particularly gifted by God to live a fruitful life for his kingdom. And that's because Jesus says, number five, fifth principle, that singleness is for more kingdom devotion. This gift of singleness, a single state, is for the purpose of more kingdom devotion. Jesus said that some voluntarily choose this life. And they choose it for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Remember, eunuch for the kingdom of heaven? Meaning they're exclusively focused on advancing the discipleship mission of Jesus. And they don't have extra obligations for caring for a spouse or children. And as we're going to see today, uh, it's not that marriage and kids are bad. Marriage and kids are very good things. But they do bring added complications. The single person is more flexible and they're able to be more singularly devoted to gospel ministry. And because of that, Jesus taught us that principle number six, singleness should be embraced by those who desire it, those who want it. He commands it to be embraced by those who want it. Jesus commands that those who are able to receive this saying should. And we're going to see in the next few weeks that as they do, they will actually be happier. It's not like a, it's not a a muting of their joy. They're actually going to be happier in fulfilling this gift. They're going to be even more fruitful. It's a good gift that brings joy, And those so gifted will see this, and they'll gladly embrace it. So, that was just a Cliff Notes version, crash course of where we've been. Uh, That's what Jesus taught us last time from Luke 20 and Matthew 19. And I took you through all that because I want it fresh on your minds as we transition to the most extensive treatment on singleness in the New Testament. Any guesses? 1 Corinthians 7, you got it. So go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And if I had a PowerPoint, my title slide would be Singleness According to Paul. Singleness According to Paul. 1 Corinthians 7, what we're going to see is that Paul reaffirms what Christ taught, and then he expands on what Christ taught. And this chapter is the longest and one of the most practical treatments on both singleness and marriage in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 7, very important. And if we're going to round out the teaching on singleness, we've really got to to dial in here on this chapter. We need to spend some time here. So we're going to spend the next two weeks on 1 Corinthians 7, trying to unpack it as best we can, hold out some some more principles from 1 Corinthians 7. It won't be like a full-on... Uh, exposition of this text, but it will will draw out some principles uh, about singleness that build on Jesus' teaching. Then, when we have that clearly in our minds, both from Christ and then two weeks in Paul here, 
Then we'll pivot and we'll look uh, with the rest of our series on just the practical ramifications of singleness, whether you're gifted for it or not, right? So some of you are, are gifted for singleness, and that's great, but some of you are not. You want to be married, but you are still single. So we're going to look at how to maximize these years and, and what we should be doing, um, and we'll build on the principles that we are learning here. So let's wade in here this morning, and before we just jump in here, uh, let's, let's get our bearings about, uh, as far as what's going on in this chapter. What's Paul doing here in 1 Corinthians 7? Well, it's a, <clears throat> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of complications in this chapter, a lot of difficult things to navigate exegetically. So it's good that we kind of get our bearings here. And you can think of chapter 7 as one long response to a question that the Corinthians had asked Paul. Right, So they had written Paul a letter and had some statements, some questions. And now Paul is responding. He's given them, you know, he's, basically all of 1 Corinthians is, is a response to what they had written to him. And so in chapter 7, he's dealing with a particular issue uh, that becomes clear when you read verse 1. And this chapter is full of Paul's pastoral counsel. It's real-time application of his theology to the issues of singleness and marriage, and especially as we're trying to navigate these things, both singleness and marriage, here in these last days that we live in, right? You're going to see that theme come up several times in this passage. Now that the ages have overlapped, right, there's, a, there's an old creation and, an, and a new. Um, Paul's trying to help us navigate how to, how to understand these things. Do you remember that? You remember when we talked about the overlap of the ages? I know if you're new, you're like, what is he talking about right here? I'm, uh... All right. Overlap of the ages. I didn't give very many nods, so I'm going to tell it to you again. You can think of this time that we're living in right now as, as living in the overlap of the ages, meaning the old age and the new age, first creation and the new creation. And we're living in this, this old age but the new creation is breaking into the old creation as we speak. When Christ was raised from the dead, the new broke into the old. When He gave us His Spirit and then He made us alive in Christ, the new broke into the old yet again. It's not fully here. Its fullness awaits Christ's return. So that's all coming. And then when it comes to marriage and singleness, marriage characterizes this first creation. It belongs to the first creation. And singleness characterizes the second. But as we've seen, the second is now breaking in. Thus, the transformation of singleness right now. And it appears that the Corinthians were a little bit confused by this, this idea. Paul's going to spend some significant time elaborating that very thing in 1 Corinthians 7. But it seems like they were tempted to live a little bit more in the new, thinking that somehow, we're not exactly sure, but it appears that somehow marriage was bad and singleness was the most spiritual thing. Seems to be what they thought. I keep saying seems because it's very difficult because we're like listening to one side of a phone conversation here. Uh, we've only got one, we don't have the other letter, so we're not really, we can't be super dogmatic about what was going on. We have, to, we have to kind of read between the lines here a little bit. But it seems like they were tempted to live a little bit more in this, this, the new age than has actually come, and they were thinking somehow that marriage was bad and that singleness was the most spiritual thing they could do. 
Hard to know for sure, but it seems to be what's going on here in the background from what Paul says to them here. So look with me in verse 1, and we'll kind of set this up. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. All right, so there's a setup as far as the chapter goes, and it appears to be what they had written to him or what they were thinking. The ESV puts that in quotes. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So when we read this verse, we realize that the Corinthians had already written Paul a letter, and now he's responding to something they had said or a question that they had raised in that letter. And it appears that they thought it was good for either people not to get married or at the very least not to be intimate in marriage. It could go either way there. This could be a euphemism. This, this, it is good for a man literally not to touch a woman. Is a euphemism could be a euphemism for marriage, meaning it's good for a man not to get married. But this could be a euphemism for sex, right? It's good for a man not to touch a woman, not to have sexual relations within marriage. And it appears they've kind of bought into this, this idea that, that the new is more fully here than, than, it, than is the reality. And so the way Paul addresses their thinking here is masterful because he walks a tightrope. Because on the one hand, he does maintain that singleness isn't for everyone, and in fact, most of them do need to get married and experience sexual intimacy. So he's going to go on to say. But on the other hand, he maintains that the single life is indeed the good life. And it's not just good, but it's actually preferable if you can manage it, if you have the gift. And so he walks his tightrope, right? And you're going to feel the tension as, we, as, you, as you read this passage because we're living in this overlap of the ages. The old age is still here. The new age is breaking in. And so we should expect to feel this tension a bit. All right, so let's jump in here. And we're going to organize what Paul says into six more principles about singleness. All right, we're going to cover the first three this morning, and then we'll cover the, the, the next three uh, next time. All right, so we're looking at six more principles about singleness. And here, the first one, is, we can summarize it like this. Singleness can be problematic for many people. Okay? This state of singleness can be problematic for many people. Give you a chance to write that down because I don't have a PowerPoint. I'll say it a bunch. Singleness can be problematic for many. You're thinking, whoa, hang on. I thought we are talking about that singleness is a good thing. It's preferable. Yeah. But it can also be very problematic. Look with me at what Paul says. He sets it up. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, this is it. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But... Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. He's talking about sexual intimacy. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by an agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So, when thinking about singleness, I think Paul would quickly point out that singleness 
It's not just not for everybody, but singleness can actually be problematic. So if the Corinthians saw that singleness and abstinence were good things, Paul says, yeah, okay, but with a large caveat. Sexual immorality is a real threat. And if you find yourself longing for sexual fulfillment, then he says, each one of you should get married. So here, Paul's affirming what Christ said, and he's expanding on what Christ said. When Jesus taught us that singleness is clearly not for everybody. But like I said, Paul goes further. He expands by showing us that the single state might actually be very problematic. Why? Because Paul says the temptation to sexual immorality is real. You see, Paul Paul knew that God creates people with an urge for sexual intimacy. Or as as one author put it, he, he creates us with, quote, innately human desires for marital intimacy and family life, desires which are good and normal and part of how God has designed us as male and female for the present age. It's from a book called Redeeming Singleness. I'm going to quote a few times from it today. Uh, Barry Danilak is how I think you say his last name, but redeeming singleness is excellent. God creates us with these human desires for intimacy and family life. These desires are good. They're normal. They're part of how God has, has made us as male and female. And for people with these good and normal desires, Satan can exploit those desires. And that means if we're trying to be single, when we really should be married, we'll often find ourselves tempted towards sexual sin. In Paul's day, prostitution was rampant. Sexual sin was everywhere in Corinth. And there's evidence in the letter that it was a problem even among the church. Many had been saved out of some really perverse stuff. But God's answer for these folks isn't no intimacy. God's answer for them is intimacy in the right way and for the right reasons in and through marriage. And so, Paul says, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband, verse 2. And even the married people, they don't need to deprive themselves of, of sexual intimacy, he says. The only reason they might go for a season without being intimate was for the purpose of prayer. So Paul writes. But then he quickly adds, okay, but come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Very practical instruction. And it highlights the problem that singleness can pose. We see the same logic again in verse 8. If you can look down there, he tells the, the unmarried and the widows that if they can't stay single without temptation, they should get married. Look in verse 8. It says, To the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. Why? For it's better to marry than burn with passion. He's saying it is much, much better to go ahead and get married if you have the opportunity to get married than struggle unnecessarily against these powerful desires for intimacy if you have them. Marriage is good. Paul will say multiple times in this chapter, it's not sin, which I think is revealing how the Corinthians were tempted to think about, to think about it. Now all this shows us that the staying single longer than you should, can be a real complication. Okay? Extending singleness unnecessarily, sometimes, I know you can't help it sometimes, but if you, if you're, to extend it unnecessarily, 
that can pour fuel on an already burning fire. But often people think that marriage is like some kind of, you know, rite of passage. Like once you're a certain age, you can just get married. That's just not the way it works. Young men um, that are here, no, no woman's going to want to marry you if you don't have a job, okay? If you can't take care of her. And she shouldn't want to marry you if you can't lead her spiritually, which means you've got to be leading yourself, okay? And ladies, no guy's going to want to pursue you if you're not growing and vibrant in Christ either. So you can waste time. You can prolong the single years unnecessarily by not being ready for marriage. So instead of flitting your life away, instead of just playing video games, scrolling social media, watching Netflix, you should be working hard to put yourself in a position to get married if you have these desires. Idle time alone is not good. It trends toward temptation in the sexual arena. You have these God-given desires. And so instead of taking the shortcut and just looking at pornography, fill up your schedule with responsibilities and learn to be faithful in those responsibilities. Start preparing yourself for marriage. Cultivate your relationship with Christ. Work on shoring up your character and your convictions. Learn to work hard and bear responsibility. If you can't be on time for class, how are you going to lead a wife and kids? And ladies, if you're not working hard now, if you're not learning to die to yourself now, how will you be a help to a future husband? Now is the time for cultivating character. Now is the time for deepening your convictions. So you don't have to extend your singleness when you should be getting married. Does that make sense? So Paul's opening paragraph of this chapter implies that singleness can become problematic for many. So the implication for us is don't prolong it more than you have to. That's within your control. But sometimes, probably sitting there thinking, it's not in my control. Like I can't help it, right? You hit puberty in middle school, but you can't get legally married until you're 18. So right there. You're stymied by the government. (laughs) And then beyond that, most of the time, your parents, wisely so, want you to finish college before you get married. You want to honor them. Besides, you really need some income to make the marriage work. Right? Kind of hard to make it work on meal points. (laughs) Or maybe you're a single lady and you're, you're ready, you're desperate to get married, but no one's pursuing you. Whatever your situation, you can't control, let's let's say you can't control your singleness. The fact that you're single. So, are you just doomed to a life of sexual sin based on what Paul says here? Are you just doomed to a life of besetting sin until you can get married? If nobody's on the horizon for you, are you you just destined to live a life of lust? Well, you might be tempted to think that you are. But I want you to read what Paul says a little bit more carefully here. Does Paul say the ultimate problem is singleness? What does he say the ultimate problem is? Self-control. Singleness is a complicating factor for sure. Right? It's like pouring gas on a, on a fire that's already burning, like we said. It's the gas component. But the fire's already there. It didn't start it. It's not the root problem. Singleness is not the root. The ultimate problem is in your heart. Paul says it that he says twice in this passage, it's it's the lack of self-control. That's the problem. 
So we could say our second principle like this, okay? Principle number two, singleness isn't the root problem of sin. The lack of self-control is the root issue, Paul says. That's an important caveat to our first principle there, that singleness can be problematic. It can, but it's not the root issue. It's not the root problem of sin. Lack of self-control is the root issue. Look look with me again in verse 5. Don't deprive one another, except perhaps by an agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There's the problem. The lack of self-control. Look again in verse 9. If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, what's the problem? Singleness? No. The problem is a lack of self-control. So it's clear here that singleness is not the most fundamental problem. It's the struggle to control our lusts. Now, I'm drawing this out as the second principle here because I think so many people read a passage like we just read, and they think that marriage is going to fix their lust problem. Probably heard that before. Probably thought it yourself. People are enslaved to porn, enslaved to whatever form of lust, and they think, I just need a spouse, then I won't struggle with this anymore. And on the face of it, you know, it's like partly true. It's the point of kind of why Paul's saying you should get married, right? Marriage and sexual intimacy is God's good gift to channel those sexual impulses in the right direction. And in that way, in that way, it helps. Singleness is a complicating factor, and marriage takes away the complication. But if you are regularly enslaved to lust, if you're looking at porn regularly, marriage will not fix that. In fact, you should not get married because you've become a liability now to your spouse. Why won't marriage fix lust, ultimately, like the enslaving patterns of lust? Because if that's happening, your desires have increased from the normal human desires to idolatrous cravings. And those idolatrous cravings, they control you. Your life is all about you. When someone chooses to indulge in pornography regularly, what is happening? Well, they're in a habit, they're in a habit of objectifying the opposite sex and of using them for their own pleasure. The Lord's told them not to, that it's forbidden, but they don't care. They habitually spurn the Lord's warnings to feed their own cravings. And that's patterned unbelief, right? And marriage is not going to fix that. If you get married, that selfish and unbelieving heart is just going to continue on unchecked, and you'll end up using and objectifying your spouse. You're doing the same thing, just got a different face. And usually, there's a lot of deception involved, too, with this kind of habitual sexual sin. You think, how? What do you mean? Deception? Well, what happens? Deleting browsing history? Presenting yourself one way at church or among your friends, when in reality you're completely different, private? That's deception. Marriage isn't going to fix somebody who's habitually lying like that. But sex isn't the only way that the heart issues of lust manifests. What do I mean by that? 
we can lust over sex, but we can also lust over other things. Like marriage. Do you know what that kind of lust is called? It's called discontentment. If a young lady isn't working hard to mortify that, she'll take it right with her into her marriage. She'll make demands of her future husband when she doesn't get what she wants. And that's the same kind of selfish heart that we just talked about. It's manifesting differently. Life's all about her. Life's all about fulfilling what she wants. She has cravings. She has lusts. And when she doesn't get them, she gets angry or she gets depressed or she gets anxious. And marriage will not fix that either. Now, I know that's hard-hitting, but it's true. And there's good news when we face the reality. And the good news is that Christ liberates hearts. He liberates people now, even as single people. He can cleanse the perverted. He loves to forgive the discontent. He can teach you to trust Him at these most fundamental levels, and He is able to transform you out of your besetting sins. But now is the time to get after that. Right right now. We don't need to waste another minute. So if that's you, find somebody here today. Find a boundless leader. Make sure that somebody is there to walk alongside you to help you know how to address your most fundamental problem. It's not singleness. That's not your issue. It's the sin in your heart. You might not be able to do much about your single state right now, but you sure can work on your heart issues. And that's going to put you in a position to when the opportunity comes to be ready to walk in it. Now, I know we spent a little extra time on, on those two principles, but let's step back. We'll put them together. Okay, Singleness, it's a good thing, yeah, but for most, it can present some problems. Principle number one, can present some complications. So, that means most people should be pursuing marriage. Or in this case, becoming prepared for that. Getting prepared for, for marriage. Now that said, we can fall into the trap of thinking that marriage will fix all our sin struggles. Marriage will help, but we've certainly got to do the heart work. And you can do that work now, even as singles. And that work will continue on even after you get married. Learning to do the hard work and mature in Christ. So let's, let's keep moving here. Um, we've got one more principle for this morning. If the single state can present problems for many, right, we don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that singleness itself is bad. That would be going too far in the wrong direction. Paul knows that singleness is actually a wonderful thing. And he says, principle number three, singleness is a spiritual gift for some. Okay, principle number three, singleness is a spiritual gift for some people. Singleness is a spiritual gift for some. Look in verse six. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, and I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. You hear that? Each has his own what? Gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. So in the same breath, Paul can long for everybody to be like him in this area, long for, him to be, long for everybody to be single, and yet he can acknowledge that we don't all have the same gifts. And that implies that singleness is a gift from God himself. 
the single, the, the single state and being able to maximize that profitably is a gift from God. Now, when you read this, you might have a few questions. Most common question that I get asked anytime I talk about this is, how do you know if you have this gift? Right? Like, do I have a gift? <laughs> now, based on everything we've just seen, I think it's safe to say that one very significant indicator would be a lack of longing for sexual intimacy. A lack of longing, or at least a diminished longing for marriage and family. It's not overwhelming. It's not, it's not, it's not incredibly strong. Point being is that the single state seems doable to you and it's also desirable to you. And not just because you're selfish, right? And you just want to live life for yourself. It's, it's desirable to you for the sake of the kingdom. Lots of times we can be motivated to stay single for the wrong reasons, right? Like we don't want to ex- fear of exposure. Young men may not feel competent or equipped to lead and so they're bashful about asking a girl out or whatever the, whatever the reasons. Young ladies may feel like they've got too many issues and maybe that's, the best, maybe that's right. You've got to be working on those things. But those are the wrong, ultimately, staying single, those are the wrong reasons. That's not evidence of a gift of singleness. That's a need that you need to grow. But the point being here is that the single state, for those who are gifted with singleness, the single state seems doable and also is desirable. And beyond that, we'll see that as we continue on in this passage next time, the gift has to do with serving God in an undistracted way, with a sort of singular devotion for Christ's mission. And it's, it's without the burden, the good burden, of taking care of a family. It's not a bad thing. But the person's just saying, I want to be singularly devoted to the mission, be able to take more risks or, or whatever it may be. We'll look at that next time. But for now, let's just bring all this together into a working definition. Um, I'm going to borrow from, again, our, our same guy, Barry Danilak, for this one. It's from Redeeming Singleness again. It's an excellent definition. Here's how he defines this gift. And I had this on the screen. Can you see it? No? It's like, well, they can just take a picture of it because I'm going to read a lot to you right now. Um, but I will, maybe I can send that out in an email later. Uh, this, is, this is excellent. All right, just listen. I'll read it slowly. Here's his definition. He says, the, the charisma or the gift of singleness is a spirit-enabled freedom to serve the king and the kingdom wholeheartedly. It's a spirit-enabled freedom to serve the king and the kingdom wholeheartedly without undue distraction for the longings of sexual intimacy, marriage, and family. That's his definition. A spirit-enabled freedom to serve the king and the kingdom wholeheartedly without undue distraction for the longings of sexual intimacy, marriage, and family. So a couple things to point out about this definition. He says it's spirit-enabled. It's a spiritual gift. It's empowered by the spirit. Spot on with the language that we see here in 1 Corinthians. And it, it involves a freedom to serve and, and to serve others, to serve Christ, not to serve self. And it's to be able to do that without distraction, with other good things, right? Good, good burdens of family, children, the spouse, companionship. Those are wonderful gifts from God. But they can become a distraction if you're singularly focused on the mission of whatever it may be, planting churches, going to hard places. 
And so here's, that's his, that's his definition. Here's how he elaborates it. I'm just going to read it to you. He says that the essence of the gift is a freedom that transcends the innately human desires for marital intimacy and family life. Desires which are good and normal and part of how God has designed us, to, has designed us as male and female for the present age. The definition does not imply that those with the gift of singleness are asexual individuals with no interest in marriage or family life. It's an important caveat. He says that it doesn't imply that those with the gift are asexual individuals with no interest in marriage or family life, but it is suggesting that they experience a genuine freedom that allows them to serve God with a whole heart, irrespective of whether they ever experience the fulfillment of marital intimacy and family life. And it is this freedom that Paul experiences, and according to chapter 7, verse 7, desires that the Corinthians might also have. End quote. Now, I like that nuance here, because he, he, he's saying it doesn't mean that they don't, at times, have an interest for marriage or family life. But they're free to rise above those desires because of the Spirit's gift and enablement, greater desires that they have to remain single for the sake of His kingdom. Now, speaking of singleness as a gift here, still under our, our third principle, Paul says that each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another, he says. And if singleness is one of those gifts, raise another question, right? Was marriage the other? Is marriage also a, a spiritual gift? That's a good question, but I would say no. Uh, marriage is not a spiritual gift. I don't think Paul envisions marriage as a spiritual gift. Why not? Because marriage is a creational norm. It's a good thing. It is a good gift from God. A, mar a marriage relationship is a wonderful gift. It's like one of the greatest of human relationships. Marriage is the norm, though. It's not a spiritual enablement like singleness is, or the gift of singleness is. Again, I quote him from our guy. He says, Marriage does not entail a special manifestation of the Spirit for edifying God's people and serving the kingdom of God. The charisma, the gift of singleness, is something more. It is a divine enablement with a specific purpose. Amen. So what does he mean then? What does Paul mean when he says that each has his own gift if he's not talking about marriage? Well, he's talking about the other spiritual gifts. Right? He's going to go on to list those gifts in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians uh, extensively. We did a whole 13-week series on the spiritual gifts, uh, whenever that was, a year ago, eight months ago. So I'm not going to get into that now. Uh, you can go back and check that out. Uh, but man, it's important here. I didn't actually cover singleness as a gift in that series because um, it doesn't often show up in the lists. Some people think it's really not part of that. So there's a debate. But I think this is good evidence that, that, a spiritual that singleness is also part of the spiritual gifts to be included alongside those in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, okay, Clay, this is all great, well and good, but what, if, what about if I'm single now and I don't want to be single, right? Like, I clearly don't have the gift. Um, or I don't want to be single, but I am single. Does that mean, do I, do I have the gift? Like, do I have the gift for a limited amount of time? Like, how does this, how does this work? Well, if you're asking the question, do you have the gift and you don't want to be single, then the answer is probably not. You probably don't have the gift of singleness. 
To have the gift means that the single life is desirable to you because of the unique way that you're freed up to serve Christ. It's a sacrifice for sure. And sometimes a sacrifice hurts. And it, you might be thinking, ah, you know, is this really the best path? But you always come back and say, no, this is what I, this is what I want. You want to make it, you want to make that sacrifice because of what it frees you to accomplish for Christ. And so if you long for marriage and family, but you don't have anybody yet, that's a good indicator that you do not have this gift. And just to encourage you, though, that's everybody at one point or another in their life. Right? We're all single at one point, and many of us will return to being single. Because unless you get married the day you hit puberty, which you don't, and then let's say that weird thing happens and you get married the day you hit puberty, and then what also has to happen is you and your wife have to die at the exact same moment for you to actually not be ever be single, you know. And that never happens. And that means that every single one of us will have to be single at some point, whether we're gifted for it or not. You hear me? And this is helpful. This understanding this, this singleness as a spiritual gift and thinking of it in those terms is helpful for us at this point, for those of you who are single and don't want to be. How so? Well, for starters, you don't get to opt out of, of, of maximizing this single state, even though you don't have the gift of singleness. Just, just like you wouldn't be able to opt out of saying, okay, I don't have the gift of mercy, therefore I'm not going to be merciful to people. Right? When we looked at the spiritual gift series, we saw that to have a gift means you're going to excel in that area. You're going to set the pace for the church in that area. It doesn't exempt everybody else from not doing it. Right? They're just not, it's not going to be their strong suit like it is for you. And so I think the same applies here. The person gifted for singleness will excel in the single state and will show the rest of us how to maximize it. You tracking with me? It doesn't mean that we cannot exist as a single if we're not gifted for it. God may, and He often will, call us to endure seasons of singleness when we're not gifted for it. And some He may even call to endure a lifetime of singleness without the gift. And that's His decision. Your job is to trust Him in the season, however long it lasts, and to maximize that season as best you can, and then do whatever part you can play in getting married. Right? Sometimes things are outside of your control, but there's a lot that is within your control that you can do to set yourself up for marriage. But regardless, just because you don't have the gift doesn't mean you can't maximize this season. So, all of that is under point number three, principle number three, where we're talking about singleness is a spiritual gift for some. So, if we kind of come back and review, singleness might be problematic for most people, but for some, it is God's Spirit-enabled gift, which means that we can't expect everyone to pursue marriage in the church. And if we're giving counsel, find ourselves giving counsel to single folks, and they're thinking through whether or not they should remain single, we shouldn't just jump at them and tell them they need to get married. Right? We need to give them some space to work these angles out and think through these things. And we need to, we must encourage those so gifted to maximize it for the glory of Christ and to show the rest of us who are maybe not gifted for singleness, who are called, who may be asked to, to be single for a season, how to maximize that life. Does that make sense? All right, we're going to stop here for today.
And, uh, and we'll pick up the rest of these principles next time. And again, um, I'll try to end next time uh, a little short so we can, I know you have questions. <laughs> Uh, you, you guys barrage me at the end of every, every service uh, on this singleness thing uh, with your questions. So I want to give some time. Uh, they're very good questions. I don't, I'm not saying that as a, as a bad thing. I think it's great um, that you're thinking through this, wrestling through it. Um, but I'll try to give some time next time for some questions, and uh, we'll go from there. All right? Sound good? All right, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this passage, and we're thankful for the way that Paul shepherd, he shepherded this church under the inspiration of your Spirit. And we're thankful for how you're teaching us and keeping us out of, out of ditches on both sides um, as we try to navigate this life faithfully for you. I pray that you would give these folks, students, workers, those who are, who are, who are working or uh, wherever they're at um, in this single life, that you would give them discernment and help them to navigate what is best and what next steps they need to take. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.